was like, I want to be a researcher, but I want people. Like I want to do research where I can see how this impacts human beings who are around me. So I was like, all right, I need to find a field that needs research about humans. And at the time, I, because I really was craving this sort of human interaction, I was volunteering at the local children's hospital in Albany Medical Center. And it was uh, really enjoyable and kind of met that need that I had. And I ended up talking to an occupational therapist who was there to see a child who had uh, experienced a traumatic brain injury Mm -hmm. early in life. And he was about four months old. And Um, she was an occupational therapist and she was just helping this child, um, bring his hands together to clap, which was a really important skill. Now I understand how that impacted his play, how that would impact, you know, feeding different kinds of activities later in life. But at the time I just said, so what's OT? Tell me about it. And she told me about it. I was like, all right, that sounds pretty cool, but I want to be a researcher. And she was like, oh, OTs are really interested in having more research in our field. We really need it. Everybody wants it. Everybody always talks about, you know, we know what we're doing works, but we need the evidence. We need people who want to design the studies and ask the questions and and put out evidence for OT. Um, So I said, okay, I'll be an OT. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have one of our dean's fellows with us. Patricia Grady Dominguez is a PhD student, very close to defending her dissertation in the Department of Occupational Therapy and a PhD in Occupation and Rehabilitation Science. You got it. We continue to plug your, your unit because I don't want anybody to confuse that with the OTD program. It's a clinical doctorate in occupational therapy that just has its first cohort on campus now. So we're excited about that, but you're in a different a PhD program, research-based program. We're here to talk about that. So welcome. We're delighted to have you and we're looking forward to our conversation. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. You know, we, we have this focus on big problems uh, and, and who's the person behind the big problems. So we'll start a little bit with you talking about when you think about your research as you're writing the, the final lines of your dissertation, getting ready to submit that to your committee and you conceptualize what are the big problems that my dissertation is seeking to pursue. Can you share a little bit about what those are? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, many of us will have heard before that there's an increase in amount of children with um, autism and other diagnoses that have associated sensory sensory features. So kids who are over-responsive or under-responsive or just don't um, correctly integrate the uh, sensations that come into them on a daily basis, whether that's visual or auditory sensations, but also sensations about their body, where they are in space, how they're feeling on the inside. And so the big problem that my research seeks to address, well, you know, the big problem is that we we have these kids and we have the capacity to treat them. We have some great um, interventions that have been shown to be really effective um, to, to help these kids, not to change their, um, you know, sensory systems as much as uh, just to help them be more functional in the, the worlds that they live in. Um, and whether that does take advantage of, you know, some of the neuroplasticity in their sensory systems um, or, you know, whether we're going for different approaches that uh, sort of just help them compensate for, for areas that are more challenging. We have these great interventions, but we don't have as many great assessments, mm-hmm. um, ways to say what are the particular problems that this child is having? What are the source of these problems? Um, 
and, and, you know, how do we pick the best intervention to use with them? So I'm working on the evaluation and errors sensory integration, the EASY, um, which is a novel instrument. It's, um, you know, a, a comprehensive suite of tests that OTs specifically, but also potentially clinicians from other fields can be trained to use and to deliver to these kids to, to sort of have the best, most tailored intervention approaches for them and for their families and the environments where they live. And I'm looking at basically how good is this measure? How well does it work? Does it give us data that we could reproduce? Does it give us data that means something to clinicians? And that really helps us make the decisions that we need to make to treat these kiddos. You know, part of what I'm hearing here, again, is just tailored interventions that are child-specific, condition-specific, and, mm-hmm. and not a one-size-fits-all approach, which I, I suspect a lot of parents will say, you know, Yahoo, because... Our, my child is an individual, right? They're, they're not necessarily typical of any particular autism spectrum disorder or whatever else it might be. So right. I think that's certainly ambitious. And I suspect you would have an audience that is eager to hear. We should get you back in after you defend. You can tell us more about your your the outcome of your conversation. How with your it went. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you, spoiler alert, the instrument is working really well so far. It's long. Um, and, you know, we've got some issues with, is it going to be feasible for clinicians to give the whole thing in one session? So we're working on that kind of thing, trying to make it as streamlined as possible possible but so far the data that we're getting from it is really promising that's great and we have just to plug it real quick we have this has been an enormous effort with thousands of data collectors we have um, normed this instrument in 50 countries so we've looked at typically developing kids scores on this instrument in i think we're up to it was 51 countries about a year and a half ago and i think we're as high might be as high as like 70 now um we've 18 different languages that have been translated in and uh over 5,000 kids typically developing kids uh, in addition to we have cohorts of kids with different diagnoses um, and different conditions that we're looking at their data as well that is remarkable i know i don't know how i got this lucky they just handed me this giant (laughs) data set and they were like go ahead this is a really meaningful project that's going to make a difference in your field do it wow what a great opportunity yeah it really was good for you you know i have two questions i want to push a little further for the sake of our audience when you talk about an instrument, you're talking about a tool. This may be in the old days a paper and pencil thing. Nowadays, it may be something that's on a iPad or something along those lines. But is it the clinician that is somehow grading or scoring mm-hmm. the child in this case? Yeah. So the easy is a performance-based instrument. So um, the examiner, the tester, um, the clinician, in most cases, will ask the child to do a series of activities, play some games. And during those, the kids will receive scores that are scored by the clinician. Um, And it really is kind of a paper and pencil task right now. Um, We do have a scoring program that's going to launch at the end of this month um, that will allow the testers to then input their paper and pencil data in and easily get standardized scores with interpretation guidance and everything for this. But uh, we're hoping eventually to pivot it to um, a sort of computer-adapted testing where the the testers... um, are guided on which inst- which items to give the kiddos to make it um, to make the test like less burdensome and more uh, more tailored to the kids' specific needs. But that's great. Yeah. And how long does the assessment typically take? An expert clinician and a kid who is regulated and ready to participate could do this in probably an hour. Most of our clinicians have given us the feedback that it takes longer than that. It sometimes takes multiple sessions to deliver all the subtests of, um, or they're not subtests, all the individual tests within the EASY. Um, might take a couple of sessions. 
and it, it might take more than an hour for sure. And it depends on the expertise of the clinician. So we have really rigorous training programs for clinicians wanting to give this instrument to make it as convenient as possible. But a big part of my dissertation work has been cutting this instrument down, taking out every item that might be redundant, every item that doesn't give us valuable clinical information. And we have a thesis student right now that I'm supervising who's working on seeing if we can't collapse some of the tests into like a more of screener tests where you could say, okay, is there a problem with this child's praxis specifically? And if so, do I need to give individual tests within praxis or is this child kind of doing okay there? So we're always trying to think of ways to make it more convenient for clinicians, um, but not to lose the comprehensiveness that you really need in order to tailor an intervention that is this kind of complex um, to treat this kind of condition that really is so varied among different individuals. Indeed. You know, and over the course of a lengthy session with a child, you may run into some issues that confound your interpretation at minute 55 or 60, right? They may be getting frustrated or fatigued and suddenly the fidelity of your scale becomes, Absolutely. right? So, you know, those bite-sized pieces on occasion probably make clinical sense, right? Yep, sure do. And we try to, you know, have our clinicians trained to pay attention to that you know is this really an inability or is this test fatigue yeah and if it is how are we gonna and it's not always going to be verbal simple verbal cues no right? most yeah. of our kiddos typically developing or not between the ages of three and 12 are not going to tell us i've had enough they will try to continue compensating or try to or they'll you know do what three-year-olds do which is sometimes violent and always exciting <laughs> when they're done testing right. but most of our clinicians know and are pretty good at interpreting the difference um, but it is an important piece because that can impact how good the scores are that you get how meaningful they are sure yeah now another thing i'd like you to unpack just a little bit is this phenomenon of neuroplasticity what does that mean like i'm explaining it to a high schooler or me, which would sure. be equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> Neuroplasticity is the idea that, you know, what we've got is not necessarily what we have forever. So um, the connections that are built in your brain are plastic in that they are um, flexible. And, uh, you know, especially when you have younger children, we're sort of able to provide different kinds of sensory input. And, and also really it's important that the child takes an active role in selecting the kinds of sensory input that they want and that they that their bodies feel that they need. And that can actually change the pathways in the brain um, and help them be more tolerant to different kinds of stimulus or to you know better understand different kinds of stimuli that are coming in and so that's sort of at the foundation of air sensory integration is the idea that the the nervous system is not fixed at any point and especially in childhood and through play um, and child directed opportunities for enhanced sensory perception or for enhanced sensation children can can begin to show more um well, they call them adaptive responses. So That's responses, the word I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> responses that are appropriate to the yeah. situation um, that, that allow the child to, to play, to engage in dressing or bathing or whatever they need to do without maladaptive behaviors, essentially. You know, and that, that ability to adapt, number one, is remarkable to me. And because we study it, you know, all across the college in a variety of different ways, whether we're talking about you know, mitochondria, the little energy producing, you know, uh, power, power yep. plants in our cells to, to, to our brains. Yeah. It seems to me in this context that, that there's also a huge element of hope for parents that, that your child is not fixed in, in this condition. We, we can work with them and they, they can adapt. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And part of this instrument, so, and, and it's not part of my dissertation, but um, it, it goes along with the easy. Um, we have a companion instrument called the Flick, the Family Life Impact Questionnaire. And that is really the at the heart of what we as OTs do, which is to say, you know, how is your family life going? What's What's going well for your child? What's going well for your family? What's difficult for you? And those are the areas that as OTs we target and we say like, you know, this child may always have a sensory system that's different from the normal, whatever that is. But if they can um, go make friends, if they can, you know, be happy, if they can achieve success in school, if you can get out the door to do errands, if you can sit with your family for a meal or whatever is important to that family, if you can do those things, then we've done what we need to do. Um, So we take advantage of neuroplasticity, but not just for the fun of it. You know, it's sure. not about just changing the kids yes. yeah. and making them more normal. We don't really care. We care about can their families function? Can they function? Are they happy? Are they able to achieve the things that are meaningful to them? That's incredible. It's neat, isn't it? Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. And as a researcher, I've had the opportunity to, you know, really be in touch a lot with clinicians who are doing this on a day-to-day basis. And I have my clinical degree, um, but I haven't really used it very much. Um, but one thing that I've really enjoyed about this easy project is that I get to talk to and hear from clinicians and families and kids, um, but who are are seeing changes from these interventions, and they're really hungry for data that shows that this is working, so that they can, you know, say this is an evidence based intervention, and it is an evidence based intervention. It's been certified as an evidence based intervention. Um, and they want to be able to tell families, you know, we're doing something that we know can make a difference with your child. And then show them at the end of the intervention, it did. You can do these things. You can sit at the, the dinner table. Your child is, you know, making friends, playing on the playground, doing whatever it is that was important to that family and that child. This is exactly what we mean when we talk about impact yep. right here. So yep. thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. I, I want to move to, to your pathway. So when you, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of defending our dissertation and, and we wish you every bit of good luck and fun for that day. I know Thanks. it's going to be, it's, you know, I had this conversation for 25 years when I talked to my own PhD students, you're going to be fine. You know, that's, that's what exactly what saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you've been well mentored and, and, uh, you know, these pathways are meant to culminate with a celebration. It's, it's also, of course, a challenge. You have to think on your feet and all those things. But I, I want to sort of rewind the tape a little bit and, and talk about your educational journey, maybe familial or social influences, particular mentors along the way. And they, again, could, it might be a parent. It might have been a college professor. It could be both. Sure. So tell us a tale. I told you I would tell you a story about worms, right? <laughs> this is the story about worms. <laughs> I got my degree, my, my bachelor's degree in uh, at an engineering school uh, in upstate New York. It's called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I know it well. Yeah. I know it well. I grew up in upstate New York. No yeah, way. Whereabouts? Well, I grew up near Utica, okay. near, sort of closer to Cooperstown. Uh, but then my folks moved up north of RPI, up near Plattsburgh, actually a little bit north sure. of Lake Placid. Yeah, yeah so, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with that area. Mm-hmm. So we were in uh, Troy, New York. By the is... way, th- this is like the Harvard of, of New York. It's a phenomenal school, so... I had a tremendous opportunity to go there and learn about worms. That's and great let to me know. T- I'll tell you. So I got my yeah. degree in not engineering. Um, I got my degree in biochemistry and biophysics. And I chose it because I knew I liked science. And that had the most science names in it. It had biochemistry and physics in it. And I was like, <laughs> I took all three of those AP classes. Yeah. This is going to be great. I'm going all in. And I loved it. 
I really loved the coursework. I loved the um, learning process. And I, I I had a professor who needed some research assistance for his lab. And through working with this professor, I had the opportunity to learn about the research process. And I was like, I love this. Mm-hmm. But his research used worms as a as a, a model. Sure. Um, which was great um, and kind of gross and really, really, really boring. And I was like, I love the research process. I love the lit review. I love, you know, looking at what's out there, what's missing, what questions can I answer? How can I design a study that'll answer these questions? I got so excited about that, but I was not excited about worms. Go figure. As it turns out. Hey, listen, some people, everybody's got their thing, right? So, and it was really just a model organism. I'm sure he was doing much cooler stuff that I didn't really understand at the time. He actually really was. He was doing cancer research with P53 and all kinds of cool stuff. But I was like, I want to be a researcher, but I want people. Like I want to do research where I can see how this impacts human beings who are around me. So I was like, all right, I need to find a field that needs research about humans. And at the time, I because I really was craving this sort of human interaction, I was volunteering at um, the local children's hospital in Albany Medical Center. Um, They had a pediatric wing, and I went there, and I rocked babies in the NICU, and I brought coloring supplies to kids in the medical ICU and the pediatric ICU. And it was uh, really enjoyable and kind of met that need that I had. And I ended up talking to an occupational therapist who was there to see a child who had uh, experienced a traumatic brain injury early in life and he was about four months old and um, she was an occupational therapist and she was just helping this child um, bring his hands together to clap which was a really important skill now I understand how that impacted his play how that would impact you know feeding different kinds of activities later in life but at the time I just said so what's OT tell me about it and she told me about it I was like all right that sounds pretty cool but I want to be a researcher and she was like oh OTs are really interested in having more research in our field. We really need it. Everybody wants it. Everybody always talks about, you know, we know what we're doing works, but we need the evidence. We need people who want to design the studies and ask the questions and, and put out evidence for OT. Um, so I said, okay, I guess I'll, I'll be an OT. That sounds fine. The stars are starting to land. Yeah, yeah, well, it could have been anyone, right? Like, I imagine if a speech therapist came in, I could be there too. But I feel so fortunate that OT was where I landed and really found my home. And I also think that I could have been really happy as a speech therapist. They're also wonderful. Sure, but sure. Um, did, did the notion of a physician, med- you know, surgeon or cardiologist, any of those things ever cross your mind? Or I love my life and all the things that I do that are not school. Um, It crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was always a path that my family thought would be a good fit for me. Now, do you come from a family of physicians? Mm -mm, Lawyers, every single one of them. My sister, my mother, my father. They're all lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Every lawyer joke you can think of, I've already <laughs> heard it. And they're is. all true. Yeah, every single one of them. No, I I do. Yeah, I, I actually come from a family with a lot, uh, very few people in the medical field and a lot of people in the legal field. Um, but education was clearly part of your environment growing sure. up. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was an expectation. I think they knew that I was never going to want to be a lawyer and that I always wanted to. Well, when I was four years old, I, I made my Christmas list. Um, and I wanted all of the things that I would need to build a hospital in the backyard. Oh, wow. isn't that something? Including How about 
um, beds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then they always kind of knew I wanted to go somewhere in the health-related fields. I realized that research is kind of the marriage of my passions and my skills. Um, I'm kind of an analytical person. I really like puzzles. I really like questions and figuring out ways to solve problems. And I really want to impact human health, specifically pediatric um, populations, but I'm not really fixed to anything. I mean, I'm really interested in in sensory integration. That's what I'm working on right now. But for me, it's not sensory integration that brings me to it. I really love developing measures. um, And I think that measure development can bring our field to a place where we can show what we are doing matters, what we're doing has measurable impacts, um, and that's meaningful to payer sources, which is unfortunately a a serious reality for the health field. We have to prove ourselves. Um, And, you know, it's not just proving it to payer sources. We need to show families what we're doing works and, you know, we need to be able to tailor interventions and we need assessment for that. So really my my passion now, I learned, is not with worms or necessarily with sensory integration or with, you know, any particular population. I really believe that measurement is one of the most important things that um, we as researchers can contribute back to occupational therapy. That's great. So so tell me then about pursuing, if I heard you right, clinical training first in OT before mm-hmm. you... Uh, found your way out here to Fort Collins. Yeah, so I I actually got my uh, master's degree um, here at CSU as well, um, and I I knew that I had to to have a master's degree and I wanted to get a PhD, but I had already been accepted to the master's program when I uh, but the program hadn't started yet, and I I just marched up to to Dr. Bundy um, to Anita, my advisor, and uh, I told her I'm going to be your PhD student, and she was like. I'm not accepting PhD students right now. And I was like, she just arrived at the university um, from Australia. And so she wasn't really ready to take on a PhD student. I said, it's no problem because I have to do my master's first. <laughs> and she was like, You're just plotting sorry, it who are you? <laughs> I was so bold and clueless, which is a pretty accurate statement for who I am as a person (laughs) Um, that I just marched up and I told her I was like I've been stalking your research and I used that word which is regrettable and she'll never let me live it down and I was like and I think it's excellent and I would like to be your PhD student and we'll we'll talk about it when I finish my master's so I always knew I wanted to do research and I think I didn't understand or appreciate the importance of having a clinical degree before becoming a researcher. Um, But having a clinical degree, despite the fact that I'm not practicing in a clinic every day, sets me up to think like an occupational therapist. I approach problems the way occupational therapists approach problems. Um, And it's kind of built into every aspect of my research. And that's another thing I think is fun about measure development is that a lot of OT measures have been developed by people outside of our field. Hmm. Um, And a lot of times the psychometric properties, how well does the measure work, those things are evaluated by statisticians who are able to give us a lot of really good numbers, um, but not able to kind of uh, merge that with what the numbers mean. And so I think having OTs who can do measure development, who can do that, that statistical side on their own can can really enrich um, the quality of our data. And so that's why I want to be an OT measure developer. Cool. Yeah. So you you managed to talk Anita into the wisdom of taking you on as a PhD student. I didn't really give her a choice. And it sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> but it went well. Yeah, she uh, she took me on as a master's thesis student during my clinical degree. 
So I completed a, a research thesis with her. That was my first measure development project. Um, and was there some element of the two of you testing each other out during that process? Probably, in retrospect. Um, I was so enamored with her and everything she had ever done. I think she, there was no possibility that she could have let me down. Um, but really, we found that I think we have a great working relationship. Um, we have a lot of fun together. Um, and she kind of she recognizes the areas that I need mentorship in and the areas that are my strengths. And she finds a really nice balance between um, building me up and also providing opportunities that are more challenging to me. So like she recently supervised me for a teaching course. So I actually taught the course. Um, and that was like a huge thing where I was so nervous. I was so uncomfortable with the idea of this. And she was like, yep, you're doing it. It's going to be fine. And it was, it was great. Um, and I didn't expect it to go well. I probably would have tried to avoid it and tried to get out of it, but she pushed me. And I think she does a really nice job knowing when to push, um, and how hard, and she expects a lot out of her students, um, but most of them rise to the occasion. Again, this, these are all the hallmarks, right, of somebody, a mentor who has had an influence on you. Right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I want to, again, just expand the view. So, so when you, you know, I hear you think professionally that Anita's clearly had a strong influence on you. Uh, how you approach life. Is there a mentor on that side of the equation? Mom, dad, a grandparent, a role model of some sort? I'm interested in the balance here. Lots, lots, and specifically women in my life. I mean, I I have a sister who is, um, she was a high school teacher for 10 years in New Orleans, um, and she just recently decided she's going to law school, and that's the track for her. Um, but It's her, not too late for you, by the way. To be a lawyer? That's what my sister keeps saying. I swing back. She's like, come on, just come to, come to, she's at BU, and she's like, you would love Boston. I grew up in Boston, so oh, she okay. very much knows that there's a draw there. But, sure. Um, no, and I, I, but I, she is an example for me of deciding what you're passionate about and not letting anything stop you from getting there. Um, and she. That clearly rubbed off on you. Yeah. Yeah, and she's she's my older sister, but she's 19 months older than me, and so we're really close oh, in age, and we've yeah. always been best friends, and that was my mom's plan. She was going to have two girls less than two years apart, and they were going to be best friends, and she did not let us deviate from that path. Wow. You no, all have but, a skill of speaking yeah, things yeah. into existence. I'll just say that. <laughs> my mother. Um, but and, and so, and then there's also, there's a lot of women in my life who have been this example of, like, there's not going to be any kind of barriers that stop us from doing the things that we're passionate about. I lived up until um, this past summer in a house with four generations of women. So I had my daughter, who's two and a half. Um, my mother lives with me, um, and I won't tell you how old she is because she doesn't probably want me to share that. And my grandmother, who is um, passionate about having people share her age because she earned every one of those years, she passed away this summer at 93 years oh old. My. And all three of them in different ways demonstrate the tenacity, the humor, the, um, you know, the sort of the attitude that you need to approach life in order to get what you want. And all three of them do my two year old with maybe less conventional means of getting what she wants, but she sure does. And, and my mom who just can solve any puzzle or make anything work. And then my grandmother, who is just the most special witty, social, you know, she, she's just able to walk into a room and build a relationship with anybody. Um, 
And that was what she loved. She was like a social person and she just loved to make friends and she could make friends anywhere. And so just just seeing these examples of people who get what they want um, and who are able to make an impact on other people's lives um, just by going out and doing the things they plan to do and not letting anything stop them. So you are fortunate. That's great. I know. Not a lot of people get to have the experience that I've had for the last two and a half years since my daughter was born of having four generations in one household, That's much incredible. less four generations, mothers of mothers and daughters. Um, and my poor husband. <laughs> who is, he's there to witness it all. He's there to witness it all. And he's fantastic and so tolerant of all of us. So, yeah. So if you don't mind my asking, tell me a little bit about your husband. He's getting short shrift here and I want to give him just he, a few moments. He is, I met him, we met in um, college and have been... At RPI? Yep, at yeah. RPI. So and was he also a science nerd? Uh-huh. He's, he got his degree in electrical engineering. Ah. Um, and we came from very different lives. He grew up in Harlem in New York City. Um, and I grew up in, like, Franklin, Massachusetts, which is just about as opposite as from Harlem as you can get in your life. Um, and we found that we just had a lot more in common than we had um, apart. But... He's fantastic. So he's actually, he got his degree in electrical engineering and then immediately decided that he wasn't going to be an electrical engineer because there's really not a lot of, um, I mean, there are a lot of job opportunities for that, but he is also a really talented programmer. Um, Mm. So he does IT work now and he's a DevOps engineer. And if you ask me what that means... It what would be about mean? as good as his explanation of OT. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just leave it That's at that. Good. That's good. But um, <laughs> he is the most gentle and kind. I mean, he really is just like he's the kind of person that like nobody has a problem with him. Everybody likes him. He never stirs the pot. He's always easy, level. And, and I think I need that because I'm a lot of highs and lows and he's a lot of sort of just level. And I like to think that I offer him a little more excitement and he offers me a little bit more levelness. <laughs> um, but he's also, um, it, we've had the really fun opportunity in the last couple of years to work together too, because the scoring program that we've developed for the easy, um, the, the website, he initially volunteered and then eventually we decided it needed to but be up. Did he really volunteer? Volunchosen, Volunchosen, yes. Voluntold. He was Voluntold <laughs> yes. that he would be doing this. Of course. Um, and to, to help us with the si- sort of like server management side of this giant project. And I knew he was really smart, but you don't really know how smart somebody is until you see them like doing the thing that they're good at. That's really their wheelhouse. Man, he can do anything. If we ask, can you make it do? Yeah, he he can figure anything out. And and he's just it's as fun to be his coworker as it is to be his partner. Um, so we, I mean, except when he's late for meetings <laughs> or needs to be reminded to email people back. But um, it's just been really fun to see that side of him um, and to to learn about who he is as a coworker too. Um, and it, it, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you work with your husband. Like, how's that going? And generally, it's just really fun. That's awesome. Um, and, and really, like, it, it just makes him seem so much cooler to me. And I already thought he was really cool, obviously. So that's neat. Yeah. yeah and he's a great dad. 
Not that you asked, but that's another thing about him that you should know is he's the most wonderful father in the world. And our daughter is just as enamored by him as I am. And she thinks that he walks on water and says yes to everything, which he does. Um, (laughs) But he's also just gentle and kind and easy and just a, a landing place for her when she's having a hard time. And I'm so grateful for that, where I can be more reactive and get into battles of wills with the two year old, which happens to the best of us mm-hmm. he's just like easy that's and so great. it's great yeah. that's beautiful good for you so when you think about pursuing these problems that you've been pursuing for the last several years again i you know i think for many of our listeners we want to make the point that you don't just wave a magic wand and a dissertation is ready to defend there, there's and you've alluded to this right the, the amount of effort and this broad network of folks who are involved in helping collect the data Give us some sense of when, when, when you go to the lab, you're, you're, I see lab loosely, of course, you're working on your research. What, what, what is a day in the life like? And give us a little bit more sense of the team. You've talked about being able to mentor students that, that are, are you know, earlier in their stages of development. Give us a, a picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a day in the life for me involves a lot of time on my computer. Um, And so my research is really um, heavy on analysis. Uh, So I spend a lot of time crunching numbers, which I love. And I know it's not for everybody, but I really enjoy it. I get like a rush from a big data set and being able to answer any question I want to answer with that data. And so that's a lot of what I do. But I do have a lot of opportunities, too, to work with um, other people and to collaborate with other people. So um, working on the easy has allowed me to work with the whole team, uh, the collaboration for leadership and air sensory integration. Um, which includes clinicians, researchers, um, and this just really incredible team of people who uh, are passionate about air sensory integration. And the passion really rubs off. So we spend a lot of time just talking about um, how this can impact kids and families and why this project is important. Um, And we have lots of meetings that are just kind of like, you know, bring us together to sort of what are the big issues and what are we addressing with this and and what do we need to do? You know, we spend a lot of time in the nitty gritty. And I especially as a a data analyzer, which is mostly what I am, um, spend a lot of time looking at the numbers. But uh, because I'm surrounded by this team of people who are really brilliant, really knowledgeable about sensory integration, um, the what does it mean is never really lost. And so I really enjoy working with them and having regular meetings that just kind of keep me grounded in why what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. Um, and then I have also had some opportunities to mentor um, master's students as well as uh, fellow PhD students, um, teaching them analytical techniques, but also sort of um, trying to get them to drink the Kool-Aid with measure development <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, really to show them why it's important that OTs have the skills to develop our own measures um, and, and why we need to be the, the people who can do sort of the art and science of measure development. We can, um, you know, build the items because we know what's important for an OT to look at and we can evaluate those items because we know how to do the research and we know how to to ask the questions and we know how to solve the problems with statistics and with the other kinds of things that need to be used. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question at all, but it does. And I'm, I'm particularly pleased to hear you use the phrase art and science, right? Because making meaning of metadata <laughs> requires some imagination, some sense of being able to see the horizon, right? So we, we often talk about the weeds and 
you have to be down in the weeds sometimes. Right? So we build the data sets, right, in, in, in many ways. But we, we have to be able to sort of, you know, step up above the tall grass on the plains and look around and, and see where we're at. So that exercise of imagination is something that I think is important. And we need to yeah. figure out how to continue to stimulate that in, in STEM students, you know, who may get focused on, I don't need that. I'm, you know, day to day to day to problems, problems, problems. But yeah. Yeah. imagination goes a long way. So. Yeah, and I think, I mean, statisticians who are statisticians, and that's their main thing, are incredible, valuable resource to us. But I do think it's really important that OTs can at least be good consumers of research materials, good consumers of, of the statistics or of, you know, whatever kind of research outputs they need to use to, to sort of understand that big picture understanding. OTs are really good at that big picture understanding. What does this mean? Um, but we have to be able to understand the nitty gritty as well, which is also not what you asked, but will be the subject of probably the first course that I'm going to teach. I hopefully will be teaching the OTD um, research course next semester, which is just teaching o OT students um, clinical. The, so the OTD is the clinical degree, teaching them how to be good consumers of research, mm. which I think is an in incredibly important skill for a clinician to have. Do you need to be able to do it for what you're doing in your everyday work as a clinician? Not necessarily, but you need to be able to read it, to understand it, and to figure out how it applies or doesn't apply to the population that you're working with. So Anita is twisting my arm to to teach this course next semester, and it's not quite set in stone yet, but I think it would be something that I feel really passionate about and hope that I could pass on to future clinicians. This is fantastic. And of course, you anticipated my next question, so we'll Run with it a little bit further. So you, you defend here in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. right? You'll be Doctor Patricia. Right? Mm -hmm. That has a ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah sounds kind of sure nice. Does. <laughs> and, and so the short-term future sounds like if we're fortunate, we're, we're going to twist your arm into staying here and teaching in the OTD program. A little bit, yeah. Can, can you cast a horizon, at least of aspirations? Again, I understand that there may not be plans in concrete yet, but give us you know the five to ten-year vision of yeah, absolutely of what you're up to. Uh, I'm applying for postdoc positions now, um, both here at CSU and at some other research centers and um, universities looking at different sort of opportunities for getting more mentorship and extending my skills that I have right now. And I am just learning, and maybe I'm a little late to the game on this, um, but I submit that I had a lot of responsibilities in the past two and a half years and haven't really been paying attention. <laughs> um, but uh, learning really what's out there for a researcher. So there's opportunities to work in an academic department. There's opportunities to work for research centers. There's opportunities to work in industry. Um, and I haven't ruled out anything. I mentioned, and I'm not shy about the fact that teaching makes me nervous, especially teaching clinicians, future clinicians, as somebody who hasn't had much clinical experience. But I do think that as a researcher, I have valuable things that I could teach clinicians, for example, how to consume research um, in a way that is is relevant to them as OTs. Because I am an OT and I go into, and I, I do my research with the lens of an OT. I do everything I do with the lens of an occupational therapist. So even though I'm not treating clients on a day-to-day -day basis right now, I, I am an OT and I think that I, I can offer some things in terms of teaching, but I do want to find a position that allows me to gain clinical experience 
um, and to really have an understanding of sort of the day-to-day of a clinician um, while allowing me to keep one foot in the research world um, because that's really where I I think that is the best marriage of my passions and skills is, is in research. But I, I think being a clinician and being grounded in the clinical realities of occupational therapy, um, which look different in every clinical setting um, and for every individual clinician, um, but having some experience in that area will be incredibly important if I do decide to teach, but also it'll strengthen my research. So to answer your question, I have no idea what's next. <laughs> I have some postdoc opportunities that I'm really excited about and that I'm just hoping something comes through with that. And I probably should have been applying for them a year and a half ago, but I wasn't. So here we are about to graduate and uh, planning on teaching next semester. And we'll see if that turns into a longer term thing or if that's just sort of a, something to do on my maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, good yeah. for you. <laughs> good for you. You know, you've come such a long way from the undergraduate days at RPI in the biochemistry and biophysics. I wonder if you could reflect for a moment on what advice you might give to your undergraduate self now that you're a few years further down the road. I think for a little while, I beat myself up for getting a degree in something that I'm not really using in a traditional sense. But the more that I reflect on what I had the opportunity to do as an undergrad was I learned how to think. Um, I learned how to approach problems. I learned how, you know, to ask questions and to to be self-sufficient in finding the answers to those questions. And so even though, you know, I'm not a biochemist or a biophysicist and my husband is not an electrical engineer and most people I know who got their undergraduate are doing something entirely different. My sister is not a um, linguist. What did she major in? (laughs) We, you know, undergraduate... And education and bachelor's degrees are an opportunity to to find something that you're really passionate about, but that's not always how it goes. But they're always still an opportunity to learn how to think Hmm. um, and to learn how to figure out what you want to know and what you need to know. And so I regret nothing. Good. That's good. At all. Good. Wouldn't change a thing. And, you know, my undergraduate years were some of the best of my life. And I would have reminded myself how much I'm enjoying it. So that's great. I have a couple questions as we draw to a close about the context in which you find yourself at the moment. So, and this is a layered one. So the CSU is a land grant institution. We take that seriously for the 25 years I've been here. That's been front and center in terms of, of our institutional identity and our mission. And so we're always interested in what that means to any particular individual on this campus. So talk to us a little bit about your sense of what does it mean to be a doctoral student at a land-grant institution? Yeah, so I think that what has been impressed on me about having the opportunity to be at a land-grant institution is that we have um, a connection with and a responsibility to our community here in Colorado and our our broader communities beyond that and and to each other as members of a land-grant institution. Um, And so the opportunity to work um, in in an interdisciplinary way with people from other departments has been impressed upon me as something that's an opportunity and that's really important. And and that, you know, as a graduate of CSU, I'm a steward of my community and I – 
I owe something back to that community um, in, in, in a way that I know that the, my community has given to me. And when I say my community, I mean, you know, my community in the OT program, my community in the College of Health and Human Sciences, all of CSU, in Fort Collins, in Colorado, and beyond. And so um, I think working and, and studying at a land-grant institution has given me a sense of connectedness um, that, you know, my work and what I do both personally and professionally impacts others um, and is is has a ripple effect outside of just my individual self and my individual career trajectory. And I appreciate that that's something that's impressed upon us and reminded to us constantly in the College of Health and Human Sciences. I think we have a really good sense of that. So that's kind of what that means to me. Did that answer your question at all? Absolutely. It's beautifully stated. <laughs> okay. yeah. I, will, I will editorialize not at all. Yes. Yeah. Very well done. Yeah. The, the next layer, of course, is this College of Health and Human Sciences, often construed, at least at first glance, as an eclectic sure. concatenation of different academic units. But, but again, talk to us about the, the context of training in the College of Health and Human Sciences. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think we I haven't really talked about this very much in this um, interview, but I think... I think it's important that I note that I have been supported in completing this dissertation by the College of Health and Human Sciences as a Dean's Fellow. Um, they funded a year of my scholarship as well as um, actually I was able to, to hire a GRA who's kind of able to continue on that path that I have started here at CSU. A grad research assistant, correct? Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, a research assistant yeah. um, who's also completing a master's thesis, which was not a requirement of hiring her, but I think we kind of convinced her that she would yeah. benefit from this too. <laughs> um, and so being part of the College of Health and Human Sciences, I think is another way that we remain grounded in why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I know that it's a little bit feels like an eclectic department. We've got, you know, hospitality and health and construction management all under one sort of umbrella. But I don't think it's difficult when you look at what our shared passions are for the human experience and for people and for community, um, how how we have you know, what we have in common and how we approach world the problems as sort of people-centered problems with people-centered solutions. So being part of the College of Health and Human Sciences and also being able to serve on the Dean's Leadership Council of the College of Health and Human Sciences for three and a half years um, has really, you know, given me that grounding that I need um, to say, you know, why are we all from these departments, these different departments, what are we all trying to do that's, that we have in common? And how can we work with each other and work with the other colleges to solve these bigger problems? I've had opportunities to work with people in nutrition, um, in human development and family studies, um, but the OT program also collaborates a lot with construction management on you know, finding accessible solutions for the physical world. And, and yeah. you know, I think it really helps us stretch being part of this kind of eclectic college um, helps us stretch our thinking on like what what are different ways to make the human condition a better one very well said that's our mission yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> you just summarized our exact mission well i've heard it once or twice oh okay <laughs> yeah being part of of the dean's lead uh, dean's leadership council as well as the dean's fellowship program has really given me an opportunity to know why we're part of this college and what we have in common and it's encouraged me to reach out to other people um, across the college who have different skills and similar passions um, that I That's have. That's great. Yeah. Trisha, I want to thank you on behalf of the college for spending some time with us today. I 
was somewhat hesitant, uh, given the context where we're dragging you away from dissertation writing for an hour on a Friday afternoon. But I wasn't doing uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're thankful for the time you've invested with us. We wish you the best on the dissertation defense. Uh, I, I hope to hear that you'll be teaching for us in the spring. But fingers crossed. Also, uh, stay tuned for news about postdoc opportunities. So for sure. Yeah. Good wishes go with you. Thank you. You bet. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one and two. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences at CSU, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.